All right, we're continuing our journey through um, uh, some parts of Isaiah to discuss the Advent. And um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 49, verses 8 through 18. And the main idea that we're looking at this morning is that Christ is the covenant. Now, this is said actually twice in Isaiah. It's said in chapter 42 as well. Um, and it is just, a, and I found it to be a very provocative and interesting statement to kind of think through because I've never, for whatever reason, uh, I've never thought about it this way, that Christ is, in fact, the covenant. He is not an aspect of the covenant. He is not just some part of the covenant. He is, in and of himself, the whole of the covenant. And that means a lot to us, but it's really important that we understand what one of those words means now, isn't it? And what does covenant mean? So when you hear the word covenant, and this is, you get to participate for just a moment. Don't just yell out at any point during the sermon, but this is where you could, if you like, participate. So when you hear the word covenant, what, have mo- what did most of you think? Agreement? Promise? One more. We're going to have three. We're Trinitarian in our worship, right? What's that? Contract, right. So those are all words that we think of, but in the biblical context, I want to propose to you that it's so much deeper than all of those words could even mean. In fact, it may be a word that uh, we're going to spend an eternity seeking to understand as we worship before the Lord who is holy for all of the rest of not time, because eternity is not time, it's outside of time, but for all the rest of our existences. And so um, this is an incredible opportunity for us to think this through now and and how it affects our worship and how it affects our love of neighbor. It's amazing that oftentimes when it comes to covenant, we don't always talk about and think about the responsibility on the one who receives the covenant. Though we were not the ones who brokered the full deal of the covenant, we are responsible in some part for aspects of the, the ongoing nature of that covenant. It does, it's not a deal breaker, but it does affect how we enjoy and participate in the blessings that come with that covenant, right? And so um, I love this quote by Stephen Garber in the book Visions of Vocation. Listen to what he says. He says, three realities mark covenants wherever they are found in the Hebrew scripture. Relationship, revelation, responsibility. The first and the last mediated by the second. And let me explain to you what Stephen Garber just said. He said that He basically said that our relationship to God and our responsibilities unto him are ultimately mediated or revealed in revelation. And so you can't know the God that you worship or that you're in relation to if if there's not something revealed to you, right? Um, And so where is God's revelation? Well, he reveals himself in creation, does he not? But does that, does that tell the whole story? Can we be just kind of quasi-pantheists or druids and just go hang out with the trees and stare at leaves and come to the conclusion that we need Jesus? You cannot. So you cannot know the fullness of the necessity of the relationship by creation alone, which is why God has, has been gracious and kind to us to give us his word. Uh, I was talking to a young lady one time sharing the gospel, and she was not a believer, and she was kind of wrestling with the notions of the Bible, and I said, well, let me, exp- let me see if I can explain it to you this way. What if your dad <clears throat> um, told you that he, that you knew he was your dad, but he never communicated with you, never told you he loved you, never told you how you could find him, never told you how you could get in touch with him, and never told you 
anything about himself. What would you think of that relationship? She said, well, it wouldn't be much of a relationship at all. I said, ah, but what if your dad, though he lived in a completely different place and you never really got to saw him, but he wrote you these phenomenal letters telling you all about himself and all about where he was and all about how you could someday get there and all about y'all's relationship and how it would be one day. She said, well, that sounds glorious. I said, well, now you understand why God gave us the Bible. And not only did he give us the Bible, but he gave us something else, didn't he? What did he give us in addition to that for the purpose of revelation? Christ himself, the word made flesh, the one who displays the glory of God as perfectly as anyone ever could, who in and of his person and work has shown us the magnitude of the love of God. What did we read in John 3, 16 just this morning? Our assurance of pardon, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that we could have everlasting life. And so uh, Holy Spirit was right. You guys were totally on the Trinitarian track, and I appreciate that deeply. But the Holy Spirit certainly is part of that because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us in the midst of that revelation understand what all that means, right? The Holy Spirit reveals and guides, and so we recognize straight away that covenant is also Trinitarian. And so um, Revelation helps us to understand how it is we are to relate to God. But Revelation also does something else. It helps us understand what is our responsibility. So did Christ die so that you could do anything you wanted? Did he? But some of us live that way. As if we could pick and choose, like corporate worship is not that important. It got quiet right then. Or that prayer, it's, a, it's, you know, take or leave it. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual gift, right? Not everybody has to pray, right? No, they do. As if sharing the gospel with our neighbor is something that we can take or leave. As if justice and mercy were categories that we don't have to engage and that we can ignore, right? 250 verses would happen to say otherwise. So it is only that when we are engaged in God's revelation on a regular basis that we understand what our responsibility is in the nature of that covenant. Now, if you don't read the word, then you can get tangled up in a couple of things. You can begin to believe that you're responsible for more of the covenant than you really are. You could actually believe that your works is what saves you. You cannot read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and come to that conclusion. You just can't. So it is, it is incredibly important that if we are going to be covenant people and we are going to be in covenant with the Lord, that we take his revelation very seriously. And if you're going to say that the Bible contains the truth or points to the truth, but it isn't all true. Well, how in the world did you come up? How are you going to come to any conclusions as to which one it is? How would you ever decide on which parts were true and which weren't? I mean, you just become kind of like the Jesus seminar and you're voting on which things you like best. Or you're like Thomas Jefferson. You know what Thomas Jefferson's Bible looked like? It had a bunch of holes in it where he cut stuff out. You know what he cut out? The supernatural stuff. Well, you know what he cut out? The heart of the gospel. 
Without the resurrection, the most supernatural thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, you lose that and you lose your justification. You lose your salvation. If Christ did not rise from the dead in the, in the form of a true man, the God-man, we are all in trouble. And so it becomes incumbent upon us if we're going to be covenant people, that we be biblical people, that we be a people of the word so that we do understand the depth of God's love for us and how best to relate to him and the responsibility that we've been given as covenant people on how then we should live. And the beauty of that is that it is Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, who has brokered all of that for us. Amen? And it is in Christ alone that we are able to understand any of it, to approach God in relationship at all, to have access to any of these blessings. And it's critical that we remember that this Advent season. It's critical that we read texts like, Christ is the covenant. It is critical that we understand the fullness of what that means to us. The passage that we're going to read actually is part of the songs of the suffering servant. And they all occur kind of in this section of Isaiah. The songs occur in chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53. I would encourage you devotionally at some point this week, if you didn't download the Advent devotional um, and are not using that, maybe you could take the time this week to look at all of the songs of the suffering servant and just ask this question. What do they teach me about the person and work of Christ? Because all of them are beautiful. And we, if, you, if you use the, the thing that we sent out to help prepare you for the Lord's table this morning, we used Isaiah 53, that song of the suffering servant, as the backdrop for our understanding of what's going to take place at the Lord's table this morning. And so we have a unique opportunity to dig into one part of one of those songs. And for those of you who are really, really good at literature, you have noticed that not only last week did I do this, but this week I'm going to do it. And so I'm, I'm kind of telling on myself but I'm doing great violence to the poetry here. I'm not stopping where it stops, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm messing with it a little bit. Now, that's not because I find myself self-sovereign, but because we don't have all day. And, uh, and so we need, to, we need to hit some part of it. So for those of you who have noticed and are, are, are maybe writing me up uh, for the PCA, uh, just recognize I confess and I, and I seek your forgiveness for doing violence to the poetry of God. Um, anyway, so let's, uh, let's look at the text. We'll look at the first four verses here this morning. Listen to God's word, beginning in Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them, and I will make all my mountains erode, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Siam. What did that sound like to you? What did that call to your mind, this text? What biblical event does this sound a whole lot like? We just studied it not that long ago. Some of you even went to see the movie. The Exodus. All of this is beautiful Exodus language. 
So again, he's saying there will be a second and last exodus in which the people will finally come home. There's another passage that is really, really important to us that it also calls to mind. Did anybody pick up on the shepherd language here? What, what, what chapter would this be? Well, should call to your mind Psalm 23. The shepherd who leads by still waters, who covers and protects and feeds along the highways. Again, beautiful texts that are so important to us and and they're called to mind yet again as God is making this promise in the person and work of the suffering servant. Now, some commentators believe that the suffering servant really is just Israel itself. But for those of you who know the history of Israel at all, has that proved to be true one iota? No, it hasn't. Now, for those of you who know who Christ is, isn't this a more perfect description of his person and work? You better believe it is. So the suffering servant, I don't think there's any real academic argument whatsoever. Um, The suffering servant clearly is Jesus Christ. Only Christ could be the covenant. Only Christ could purchase these types of things such that we could go on a second and last exodus to finally come home. I love the way he says that he says in a time of favor I have answered you in the day of salvation what this should call to our minds and it just depends on how much the Old Testament you know it should call to your mind Jubilee anybody know what Jubilee is what happens in the Jubilee all of the slaves are set free all of the debts are canceled all of the land is returned What a beautiful concept. What an incredible thing. Now, what we do know is that did Israel practice this very often? Actually, no, she did not. In fact, after the time of Moses, she didn't do it not one time. Woe be unto her, and did Israel last? She did not. So she clearly is not the suffering servant who purchased in the true jubilee what is the canceling of debts, the freeing of the slaves, and the reapportioning or the giving back of the land to the people. So it's only Christ who truly can set the captives free. It's only Christ who can truly cancel the debt, which is your sin, for which the payment is your death. What are the wages of sin? Death. And only Christ can grant you and build you a place in the new promised land, the final promised land, which is the dwelling place with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? So it's interesting and beautiful that this jubilee language is is in here, and it says, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. So what does it mean for Christ to be given as a covenant, or the suffering servant to be given as a covenant? It means this. It means that he will be and provide the entirety of the means necessary for the two parties to be in relationship with one another. Does that describe Jesus? So what was it exactly that separated us from God? Sin. Sin separates us, right? Why? Because we sang it, for he is holy. He cannot tolerate sin to be in his midst, much like a flame cannot tolerate for a napkin to be placed within it. It must consume it. So his holiness cannot tolerate sin. And if we have become sin, if it is is coursing through every fiber of our being and who we are, and if we were to come before him, what would happen to us? 
we would be lost. How gracious is our God that he would recognize the distance between us and not say, well, it is perfectly just for me to leave the chasm wide. But instead to say, I am going to give you all that you would need to span the chasm, to come all the way back to me, your Abba Father, for the sons and daughters to finally be able to come back home. And Christ is the entirety of that means. It is in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through your confessional, humble receiving of all that by faith alone that we are able in any way, shape, or form to have a relationship with God. So when it says that Christ is the covenant, it means that he is the means solely by which we can have relationship with God. It also means that he is the full revelation of all that that means. So when John says, and the word became flesh, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and and the word entered the world, that Christ in and of himself, in the entirety of his being, is displaying all that was written. Notice on the road to Emmaus, what does he tell the, the disciples that he's come upon? What does he share with them? What does he crack open? The, the, not just the, it was all of it. The law and the prophets, is he not displayed in its wisdom as well? He is the whole of the revelation. Everything ultimately points to him. Now, let me be careful here. I'm not suggesting that in every tree and rock there lies Jesus. But everything is arcing ultimately narratively toward him and reveals him. Why? Because he is who we need. He is the covenant. He is the only means by which we can be in relation to God. And also, too, it means that Christ is also the means of responsibility. How could you ever please God apart from Christ? Can you? Can you ultimately please God apart from Christ? You gotta, hey, listen, none of you will exceed the Pharisees. None of you. You could try the entirety of your days. They made laws and laws and laws to keep them further and further from the actual law so they would break no law, such that they had forgotten the law. They tithed of their mint and their cumin. I can't wait for one of you guys to put a little oregano in the basket someday. That would be interesting. I love oregano, by the way, and basil. And so so they tried as hard as they possibly could to please the Lord with their actions. And what did he say? Filthy rags before the throne of God. Absolute filth before the throne of God. And so our responsibility is tied in full in Christ who is the covenant. Notice what John says in chapter 15. What does he say? Abide in me and I and you remain connected to the vine. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. I don't like reading that any more than you do because it seems pregnant with, and fraught with failure, does it not? But it beautifully, he says, and all the commandments can be summed up in these two, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's Trinitarian worship. And to love your neighbors, you love yourself. That's missional love of your neighbor. Now, you may say, well, you didn't make it any easier, Mr. Barn. I know. That's why we got to do this in community. That's why we've got to constantly keep going back to the covenant. That's why we constantly have to, to, to sift through revelation to seek to understand how in the world it is that we could do that in Christ. But here's the beautiful part. 
Is it solely, now that we've said all those things, is it solely left to you to do those things, to be pleasing to the Lord? When he looks on you, what does he see? He sees the covenant. He sees Christ's righteousness covering you. He doesn't see your pitiful attempts to love him today. He doesn't see your utter inability to love your neighbor as you ought to today. What he looks on you and he sees is he sees you arrayed in the beauty and the washness and the whiteness of Christ. And does that mean you don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore? Absolutely not. In fact, the opposite. It is that reality that should empower you and grant you the ability to actually do those two great things. Recognizing that it doesn't depend on you. It's Christ the covenant who grants you the relationship, who grants you the revelation, and grants you the ability to keep the responsibility that now rests on you. Amen? So that's not just a singular statement. When it says that he is going to give Christ his covenant, I want you to know all that you get. You get it all. And he goes on to say, stuff that is from that jubilee language. He says, I'm going to give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, and saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. So all of that is that jubilee set free language. And that is ours in Christ alone. Amen? And so today it is interesting that, it's not interesting, it's actually very providential and beautiful that we get to talk about Christ the covenant and we're going to participate in a covenant renewal ceremony. That we are going to celebrate Christ as covenant. And all that that means together as family. And we get to do that with a new family member. Communicant member, that is. He was covenant before that. And so... What a wonderful opportunity as we, as we think these things through, as we meditate on these things, that this table has ultimately purchased for us the relationship and the revelation, and it grants us the strength for the responsibility. Amen? We'll talk more in just a bit. You thought I was about to wrap it up. You guys got excited. I saw it in your eyes. Nope. Let me give you a quote from J. Alec Motier. He says, In biblical thought, the covenant is a unilateral pledge and consequent work of God. Now, it's really, really important that we understand that for Christ to be the covenant means that God moved first and solely and all by himself. The whole of the covenant rests in the hands of the Lord. There's no part of it that we need to keep in terms of uh, being engaged in and welcomed into that covenant. Okay, that's really important. He goes on to say, to speak of the servant as the covenant means that it means that while, as we know, it is through his work that covenant blessings become available. It is only in him, in the union of personal relationship, that these blessings can be enjoyed. Now here's our part. So God's part was to make or provide the means of the covenant to move toward us because we would never in a thousand years move toward him. Remember, we, what are we to him according to Ephesians 2? We're enemies. What, what did the text say in John? What do we love more than anything? We love the darkness. Now, if you think you're not someone who loves the darkness, let me ask you. How honest are you really? How, how honest are you really about how, when someone comes up and says, how are you, how you doing? You love the darkness, don't you? How many of you are maybe caught up in a situation right now where you're separated from someone else where your solution is to avoid them? You love the darkness, don't you? 
How many of you are, are caught up in, in circumstances and situations that you're thinking in your mind, I, I, gotta get, I can't let anybody know about this. I've got to get this fixed. I've got to clean this up before anybody finds out. You love the darkness, don't you? We all do. I do too. Do you know how hard it is to be a pastor? Do you know how hard it is to have a 19-year-old daughter who lives in Spain with a Facebook account and be a pastor? Who is very spirited and thinks for herself? Do you know how hard it is to have a son who thinks that he is his own God and never says it that way? but on most days doesn't think he needs anybody but himself. He is a fully autonomous and thoroughly sovereign man. He would never say it that way, but it's, it's there, isn't it? You know how hard that is? Because I love the darkness. I just don't want you to know about it. My daughter showed up at the uh, women's thing on Friday night, and, 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 and I did. I felt terrible. I said, all right, here's the things you cannot say. <laughs> and you may say, well, Cameron, you love the darkness, and I would say yes, yes, I do. Way more than I do the light sometimes. Woe be unto me, I am grieved. I, there was part of me, even as I stopped her and said that, that was thinking, what are you doing? Are you hedging your bets? Are you stacking the deck? You know she can't. You're asking her to do something she can't do. In fact, you're actually doing, you're telling her things that she's going to probably purposefully do to watch you squirm. And she did, and she's grown up a whole bunch. So <clears throat> I just want to say to you, I, I love the darkness too. And I'm way more concerned sometimes with what you think about me and, and what you know about me than I am the truth. I'm way more concerned with how things are going than how you're doing. And so we love the darkness, but yet God in his great grace has shined a light deep into that darkness and said to those who, re who reside there, come out, appear. You don't have to live in darkness anymore. Let's look at verse 13. This is the wonderful psalmic response to all that is given in the covenant. And it almost, and again, this is where I've done probably a little bit of violence to the poetry, but, but it, is, it almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Like we go from verse 12, but no, this is the perfect response for knowing what we now know. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Wow. Knowing what we know about the covenant, this should be our response. We should break forth into praise. This should be to be called out of darkness where we are dying and we are miserable and we are afflicted. To be comforted and to receive the compassion of the Lord in Christ alone, we should be of all people those who would pour forth praise. Is this what is fast upon your lips this Advent season as it represents the fullness of what you have in the covenant with, with God through Christ? Listen at what John Oswald says. He says, it is significant that the attribute of God to which the Old Testament returns again and again is his compassion. Now, how many times have you heard the Old Testament just all about how God hates people and wants to kill them? You know, I was a radical anti-theist, and I thought that too, until I actually read it. 
and was absolutely blown away by how much grace courses through the words in the Old Testament. How much grace is present even from the beginning. We looked at Genesis 3.15 just a few weeks ago, the Proto-Evangelon, the first gospel, the hint that all would not remain as it is in the fall. And, and yet, we miss it, don't we? How many of you have ever thought to yourself, man, the Old Testament's filled with God's compassion? We struggle too with it, don't we? But yet, it is the attribute that is returned to again and again and again. Listen to what else he says. He says, his, meaning God's, tenderness and his ability to be touched by the pain and the grief of his people. Is that the God you know? Is that the God for whom you are in covenant through Christ? person and work? Or are you sometimes wrestling, feeling like maybe God has forgotten you and that he's departed from you? Or maybe he's busy in India or Thailand or somewhere and he doesn't know your pain. Listen to what else he says. His transcendence and almighty power are never forgotten, but it is his compassion to which they return with wonder again and again and again. Remember, what is the will of God? We've been talking about this for weeks. You've got to get this. What is it? What's the will of God? Help me. To dwell with his people. How, how does he long to dwell with his people? Does he want to dwell with them so he can tell them how stupid they are? How wrong they've been? How foolish? How many mistakes they've made? Is that what he's got a laundry list, an eternity long? What's he going to do when he dwells with his people at last? Comfort them and grant them the greatest compassion of all eternal life. Amen? That should move us. So the thing that I would ask you to consider this Advent season is how has the Lord himself given you comfort and granted you his compassion? Isn't that a worthy thing for us to consider this day because there's a lot of things competing for our attention. There's a lot of things that would try to blind us to that reality. A lot of things that would, that would call us back into the darkness from which we have come. And yet, the Lord is so gracious as to be with his people in Christ. And he will return again to dwell with them for an eternity in the last advent, granting them the fullness of what that means. But what's interesting about how the text goes is, and again, this is what seems so strange about the text, that you get from 13, now let's look at what 14 says. It's a very interesting statement. It says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. One of the things I love about the word is how really deeply honest it is. You know, how do you go from, thir- how do you go from 8 through 13 to that? How, do we, how would we, I'll tell you, you live between the now and the not yet. You pay attention long enough to what's going on in a fallen world and you too will ask this question. Or you will make this statement. You will declare this. But listen to how the Lord responds. Even after all he's offered them, and for them to say this seems almost like a blasphemous slap in the face. But let's see what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. 
Now you know why we sang before the throne of God this morning. Engraven on his hand and on his heart. Comes directly from here. He says, your walls are continually before me. Your builder makes haste. Your destroyers and those who laid waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. Interesting, he says, lift up your eyes. What might he be suggesting that we all too often are doing? We're way too concerned with what's going on in the dirt. Think Colossians 3 here. What does he tell us to do? Look to the ascended Christ who sits at the right hand, who has purchased all for you and sits because it is finished. And that is where you will find your strength. He says, lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. The they there is the children who have been cast out into exile. So all of the children of Israel will return. And he goes on to say, as I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. He's saying that you, you will not be cast out. You will never be forgotten because we are in covenant relationship that has nothing to do with what you can see and what you can do, but has everything to do with what the suffering servant has done. The finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ. So in the moments where you don't utter psalm-like praise because of the covenant, and you instead are looking around going, I really think God has probably forgotten me. Remember these words. Be a people of the word. Write them on your heart. Let them be as frontlets between your eyes. Put them on your doorposts. Share them with your children when you walk and when you stand and when you sit and when you lie down. Because no greater words have been spoken than to in the midst of our doubt and in the midst of our sorrow for God to say, your name is written on my hand and your structures are ever before me. And what does that tell you? This thing's permanent. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. And I love this line in Before the Throne where it says, no tongue can bid me thence despair or depart. Nothing can call you from him. You are his, and he is yours in covenant with Christ. Listen to what John also says in another place. He says, the suffering servant will be for Israel what Israel could not be for itself. Same is true for you and I, that the suffering servant was for us what we could never be, which was the means of the covenant. He goes on to say, his servanthood will make possible theirs and ours. As he becomes the means of Israel's restoration to God, he makes them a prototype for the restoration of all the world. If we are going to be arrayed with the redemption and reconciliation of the Lord as a bride, we the church then stand as a signal, a city on a hill, not a light to be placed under a bushel. We are called to share this with others. We are called to go into the darkness and say, come out. We are called to go into the prisons and say, you have been set free. Both physical and mental. We have been given the liberty to truly be ambassadors of reconciliation. Woe be unto us if we would not long to have others come to know this. And what I have found interesting in my experience as a Christian is that 
the times where I have grown the most is, have, have been when I have applied it the most. One of the growingest times I ever had was me and a group of folks went to Bay St. Louis after Katrina. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Katrina, but the eye of the storm hit Bay St. Louis. The wind meter broke at about 135. The entire bridge disappeared into the bay. There were places that looked like flipped over dinosaurs because they were utterly gutted. The Catholic Church was just these ribs of steel. And I remember standing on the edge of all that destruction and wondering, what on earth? What could we do here? There's a little Presbyterian church called Lanyap Church, and Lanyap's uh, Creole for a little bit more. And you get 12 donuts, we give you 13. That's a little bit, that's Lanyap, a little bit more. And so, so Lanyap was in the midst of that sorrow and brokenness, shining a bright light and doing amazing things. And it was utterly knee-buckling to stand in such. Now, I'm not saying you all got to go and do that, and I'm not saying we got to bring all that in here. I'm not. But what I am saying is that you are ambassadors of reconciliation. And because you are in covenant with Christ, you're without excuse. So how do we apply all this? What do we do with it? Well, since Christ is the suffering servant, who is the covenant, since Christ is truly the covenant, then we can have freedom and stability in the presence of the Lord. That is crucial because some of us wrestle with whether or not the Lord loves us, whether or not the sins that we have committed somehow keep us from the throne, whether or not our our mistakes somehow eclipse and overshadow the work of the cross. It's real, isn't it? Look at what the, the people said, verse 14, but we are forgotten. You felt that sometimes. I've felt that sometimes. But in Christ, who is the covenant, we must remember we have been given freedom and stability. We will never be cast out from the presence of the Lord. It also grants us the comfort and compassion of God, which is worthy of our praise. What else should we celebrate? What else should excite us than this? It also grants us, thirdly, the assurance in the midst of great and sweeping darkness and doubt. And lastly, it gives us the opportunity to display and offer all of this to others in a fallen world. Amen. So Christ is the covenant. And what's beautiful about all of this is that he gave us something to remind us often that he is the fullness of the covenant, that he is the means of relationship with God ongoing, that he is the revelation, the, the greatest picture of God's love for this world that there ever was writ large in all of eternity, that he is the means by which we can be responsible and do the things that he has called us to do, that it is not a, a fool's bargain. It's not a, 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 the charge of the light brigade. We're not just charging cannon mounts on horses. It's what it feels like sometimes, doesn't it, in this world? That somehow the weapons that we've come up with are woefully outdated as the culture snarls. It's like R.C. Sproul once said, the world is fine with the church as long as she remains hidden on her reservation. But the moment that she steps, steps off of it, that benign smile, it will turn into a snarl. Unfortunately, what I have seen is before the world snarls, the sheep do. That the moment that we try to step off the reservation 
and to step into the darkness there, instead of the world being the first one to attack, it is the sheep from behind. And so, my desire for all of us is for us to know the fullness of what this covenant is and to be able to celebrate it. And, and, and again, the Lord has given us something to remind us often. Remember, the last meal, the Passover, the last night that Christ would be with his people that he loved so deeply. He said to them these words, he says, do this in remembrance of me. As one commentator says, this meal, is, this meal, this Lord's Supper is stretched taut between the last Passover and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that it is in this meal that we are reminded often of the realities of Christ being the covenant. That in this meal we are reminded of the fullness of that relationship. In this meal it has revealed God's great love for us. What does it represent? It represents the broken body of Christ and his shed blood for the salvation of his people. It also serves as the nourishment that we need to keep the things that we were told to keep. See, it's this table that grants us the ability to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. It is in these humble elements that we are able to confess the grandness of our love for him and also, too, to love our neighbor This is where faith is nourished. This is why we at Christ Community do not see this table as mere memorial. It's not that nothing happens. What we do say is that the bread and the juice do not turn into the actual body and blood of Christ, re-sacrificing him. No, that that would be a violation of the entire book of Hebrews. He died once. The sacrifice was once. But what we do believe is that in this table, our faith is strengthened. We are carried in essence before the very throne of God to receive what it is we need in these times of trouble in a fallen world.